This is Guns and Butter. I look at is you have the secret societal system that's able through uh, different people uh, through different organizations is able to uh, affect change within different countries and they play countries against each other they do all kinds of things their end game their end game is to rule the world through China these secret societies I'm Bonnie Faulkner today on guns and butter Chris Milligan Today's show, Skull and Bones, Secrecy and Our Republic. Chris Milligan is a publisher, writer, and musician. His father was in the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, Military Intelligence, G2, and later in the CIA, rising to Branch Chief, Head of Intelligence Analysis for East Asia. His father told him things he didn't understand in the late 1960s. These revelations led to over 40 years of research into the subject of CIA drugs, clandestine operations, and secret societies. His publishing house, Trine Day, brought Anthony Sutton's America's Secret Establishment, an introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones to a wider audience. He started Trine Day in 2000 as a vehicle to get suppressed books into wider circulation. With no shortage of spiked materials, Trine Day has grown to over 100 volumes in print and has succeeded in achieving a wider distribution for suppressed works. He edited and is a contributing author of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, Investigations into America's Most Powerful Secret Society. Chris Milligan, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Bonnie. In the preface to your anthology, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, Investigations into America's Most Powerful Secret Society, you write that, quote, this book started as research into trying to understand some things my dad told me. Who was your father? Could you take us through his history with intelligence? Well, uh, his name was Lloyd Milligan, and... um at the age of 18, uh, he was an exchange student to the University of Shanghai. This was in 1936. Um, he started working with the State Department then. The State Department asked him to gather uh, anything that he could about the Japanese. Uh, he left Shanghai a week before the Japanese bombed it, went up to Vladivostok, went across the Trans-Siberian uh, railway through Moscow to Vienna, uh, then went up to Berlin, and then finally ended up in 1937 at the World World Council of Churches with the Dulles Brothers. And then he went back to school, graduated in 1939. He was supposed to go to a school in Switzerland uh, for study on international relations. Um, but the war, World War II, had started, and he ended up, got as far as the basement of the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where he was working under Archibald MacLeish, who uh, was a member of the Order of Skull and Bones. Um, while he was there, they gave him the Philippines desk, told him to become an uh, expert on the Philippines. Uh, he was in um, 
William Donovan's, Wild Bill Donovan's first organization, uh, COI, Coordination, Coordinator of Information. Uh, then he went from there to OSS. Uh, and then when he was uh, in OSS, he got uh, drafted uh, in World War II, and OSS said, great, you're still going to be working for OSS, uh, but we're going to put you into the military. Uh, we do not trust uh, General MacArthur and one of his aides, uh, Colonel Willoughby, and they wanted him to spy on them and also to gather every anything that was printed uh, within uh, the Japanese-controlled uh, Philippines at that time. Um, the gentleman, my father, they put him on as the personal and private secretary to a Dr. Hayden. He had been in charge of the Philippines education system, the library system. Uh, we, The United States owned the Philippines. Um, and then uh, when the uh, Japanese uh, invaded the Philippines, um, uh, Dr. Hayden was working with a bunch of the guerrillas. Uh, Dr. Hayden left uh, the Pacific Theater to talk to Roosevelt, came back to the United States. Uh, he died when he was in the United States. They took my dad out of theater and then uh, sent him back to the Philippines to pick up the paperwork that uh, Dr. Hayden had. Then he went back to the Philippines and started working a lot with the guerrillas, worked with the guerrillas, uh, went with them into Manila way before the American troops. He sequestered the uh, Japanese puppet government's library and papers. He got sued by the Japanese government for that and got given a legion of merit by the American government for that. Um, and when MacArthur finally arrived into the Philippines, uh, into Manila, uh, he found a bunch of his uh, friends in jail because MacArthur had been raised in the Philippines. His father, Arthur MacArthur, was the first military governor um, that they sent over there during the Spanish-American War. And uh, there's a very thin oligarchy in the Philippines, and so these were his MacArthur's friends that were in jail. And he didn't like that, and he said to get rid of my father. Uh, they moved my father then from the Philippines to being head of research and analysis for the invasion of Japan, and they had to get a somebody in to replace him into the Philippines, and that person had to be both in OSS and in military intelligence, uh, G2, uh, and there was very few of those people around, and the person they got was a gentleman by the name of Edwin Lansdale. And... Um, he was very much an interesting person. My father started working with him in psychological warfare during World War II. Uh, then my father uh, went, he got a, given a special aegis between VJ Day and his muster, and that was, uh, he was supposed to write a special report on the Japanese use of heroin and opium uh, before and during World War II. Uh, then he went back to D.C., went through a couple of alphas, and uh, was in CIA when it, when it began. Uh, his last overt job in CIA was branch chief, head of all of uh, East Asia Analysis Office, 
then in 1951, uh, he went covert. Uh, they needed somebody. My dad was a rather liberal guy. He was from the West Coast. Uh, they needed somebody to go talk to Sukarno in Indonesia, and so they sent my dad and actually myself and my brother and sister and my mom uh, as a family to go with him uh, to Indonesia. Uh, and then he came back to the United States, and um, what he told me later on, uh, he, uh, as kids we were told he had a uh, job as an uh, advertising salesman, uh, for the Glen Falls Sun Echo around D.C., but actually what he was doing, he was helping to write the uh, what's now known as the uh, PDB, the President's Daily Briefing. He explained to me that it was, he called it a newspaper that they helped write for the President and the generals every morning. And then uh, in 1956, he was uh, sent uh, to the Far East, uh, again, he met with uh, Lansdale in Vietnam, um, and he must have written a report because uh, Lansdale was soon recalled. And then my dad uh, ran into some oh interference, and he uh, told me he left the agency soft in '57, and then left him uh, hard in '59. Uh, in, in 1957, he got. Uh, all of a sudden, he went from being a part-time speechwriter uh, for a senator and other things to becoming a vice president of a college in, in Nashville. And uh, then, like I say, he, in 1959, he, he, he was asked to be president of the college. Uh, the president had quit. Uh, he said no and left and moved the whole family out to Oregon. And he later told me in, in 1969 when he took me into a room with a Dr. D.F. Fleming from uh, Vanderbilt that he had uh, quit them in, in uh, 59. That's one reason he was talking to me in 69 because he uh, had signed a piece of paper that said he couldn't talk for 10 years. And uh, I, I thought about it later and it didn't make much difference, I thought, because nobody would believe what he had to say. So your father was working for intelligence in some very big hot spots, Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia. You mentioned the rebels in the Philippines. Now, were you, re were you referring to Philippine rebels that were going up against the Japanese or just... The Japanese, yes, yes. He was working with the guerrillas that were going against the Japanese. There's a a book that he uh, edited, uh, written by Hernando Obaya, who was a, a major uh, Philippine journalist. It's called uh, Betrayal of the Philippines. A friend of mine has told me, and I wanted to ask you about this, that with regard to Ed Lansdale's work in the Philippines, that somehow guerrilla groups in the Philippines were either uh, infiltrated or uh, directed or whatever, and then wiped out eventually, like they were... Do you know anything about this? Well, um, there was a, quote-unquote, communist uh, insurgency, uh, the Hook, the or I don't know how you pronounce it, H-U-K-S. And uh, 
Lansdale ran a campaign. It was mostly psi war. It was mostly uh, false uh, battles, and and uh, where they would uh, say there's a big uh, to do, and then he would take his guy who he ended up getting elected as a president, Raymond McGoosey, or I can't say his name either, um, would be the big hero. And it was it was mostly a uh, uh, false battle campaign. And they would do things such as uh, to scare the people. They would uh, uh, kill a body and, and drain all the blood out and tell the people that there was vampires and stuff like this. Well, now, was this a campaign in order to turn the general population against the rebels, or was it to figure out who they were so they could be wiped out? Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, uh, a little, little bit of both. But the biggest thing was, uh, was a stage show to get the guy that he wanted elected president president. Yes, okay. Now, you mentioned that you and your whole family went to Indonesia. Now, what was going on? Well, now, eventually, the head of Indonesia that your father was meeting with, he was overthrown, right? Absolutely, yes. Yes, that was a very, very bloody and horrifying overthrow. What do you think your father's uh, mission there was? Well, his... Sukarno had just uh, uh, consolidated power and had just, you know, come up with the the country of Indonesia. It had been uh, owned by the Dutch, and this was after World War II, and the the colonies were, you know, going away. And so, and and he was a, uh, uh, you know, he was for the people and and stuff like that. So they they needed somebody liberal that he could talk to. And so they sent my dad uh, to talk to him and help set up uh, a relationship uh, with Sukarno. Right, and then Sukarno was overthrown by Suharto, right? Yes, yes. And uh, see, we we left we we left in fifty two, right at the end of fifty two. Uh, so uh, and then my dad came back, and he had already he he just stayed covert. And uh, what he told me was that's basically when he started to uh, write what's now known as the PDB, right? Be part of the group that wrote that. And because before then, he'd been branch chief head of all of East Asia analysis office. Well, was he writing the presidential daily briefings from Indonesia? No, no. We came, we came back to the United States and uh, lived in Fairfax. We were only we were only in Indonesia for about two years. I see. And then when was Suharno overthrown by? I'm, I'm I get these names mixed up. What is it? Suha- it's, it's Sukarno and Suharto, right? Um, <laughs> when, when, it, when was he? It was, was after the six. Remember, Sukarno tried to do. He had the Bandung meeting, uh, and they were going to have a. Uh, Oh, a third world uh, line between, you know, you'd have the uh, the commies and the capitalists, and then you would have this third world, uh, which was uh, all the other powers trying to, to get together to, to be a thing. I'm speaking with publisher and author Chris Milligan. Today's show, Skull and Bones, Secrecy and Our Republic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
then also there's the the situation of the gold. And uh, I strongly recommend people to read a book called Gold Warriors by Sterling Seagrave. Uh, he is the son of uh, Thomas Seagrave, the, the Burma surgeon. He was raised in Southeast Asia. Most of his books were Book of the Month Club and New York Times bestsellers until he wrote Gold Warriors. He got so many death threats that he moved to France, and he had to publish it himself. There is an uh, edition that has come out from Verso out of uh, England. But it just, if you read it, I mean, your, your jaw just drops. And, and Lansdale's a big part of it. MacArthur's a big part of it. Uh, Nixon's a part of it. But you see, the Japanese had a thing called Operation Golden Lily. Um, that started in the 30s, and they would go through Korea and China, and they would go into every little village and big towns and say, give us your gold. And they stuck around for, you know, some of these places for almost 10 years. And so they would get the, the easy gold, and they, later on, and, and there was a huge amount of gold and precious gems that were stashed in, in Indonesia, um, Burma, and most of it in the Philippines. And Lansdale, uh, 10 days after he arrived in the Philippines, ended up doing an interrogation on somebody that led him to this gold. And this gold's a big part. We, we gave a whole bunch of it back to, to China, uh, and then there was a bunch of this gold that was... Uh, used to finance uh, CIA operations and other things. So approximately how long was it after you and your family left Indonesia that Suharno was overthrown? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say about 10 years. Seems to me it was right around 1960, but I, I, could, I, I, I don't know. Okay, well then it was quite it was a substantial amount of time as well. It, it was a substantial amount of time. Okay. You know, my, okay. My my dad wasn't wasn't involved with that. Right. Now, he, he 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 became aware of the drug uh trade and that was his big reason for uh leaving. He he just would not uh stand for it. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. Was this are you are you referring to Indonesia or Vietnam? Uh Vietnam. I see. Vietnam. What was your fa- when was your father in Vietnam and what was he doing there? And you were there as well, right? No, no. This was 1956. Uh, we were we were left at home and told that father was going to be writing this book on the church in Southeast Asia, and we were taken to our grandparents' house in Oregon. And he met with uh, Lansdale uh, at a little town called Toi Ninh, uh, Vietnam, the home of Cao Dao, which is a secret society, and. It was how I found out, well, I knew about the trip when I was a little kid, and then um, my dad died in 1990, and I was in the, the midst of doing a lot of heavy research on a subject I call CIA drugs. And uh, one of the things I was trying to find out, because I'd been told that Chiang Mai, Thailand, which is the second largest city in Thailand and is basically a heroin city. There's a four-lane highway straight to the Golden Triangle, and all the big banks have uh, ranches there. That um, it had been a small little village uh, in my lifetime, and it's now the second largest city, and I was trying to find out information, and I, and I couldn't. And then 
I was having a hard time, and, and then after my dad died, I'm going through his papers, and I see in this 1956 trip, his itinerary, he'd been in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I say, great, I can go uh, speak with my mother uh, about this. And uh, so next time I see my mom, I visit home, I, see, uh, I ask her, I say, Mom, how big was Chiang Mai, Thailand? She says, oh, it wasn't very big. Uh, probably the biggest thing in town is the church. I've got some pictures of it. So I'm uh, reaching up right next to where she's sitting is her bookcase with her picture books in it. And I'm pulling down the picture book from that time. And, and she says, and that's when I stopped believing everything I read in the newspapers. And my mother was a very good CIA wife. I would ask her questions all the time. And she would say, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And because my, my dad was, was very sick for the last 10 years of his life. I really couldn't talk to him much. Um, and so um, uh, she says, well, uh, that's when I stopped believing everything I read in the newspapers. And I says, what, what do you mean? She says, well, they'd been in, in Vietnam, and they'd gone from there to Bangkok and then to Chiang Mai. And she said the big story in the, in the uh, Thai papers was about this big battle in Vietnam right where they had been. She said, there was no battle. We were having a picnic. And so I, I turned the picture page, uh, you know, a couple pages, and there's uh, my dad talking to Lansdale in Vietnam. And then there's this beautiful picture of my mother. Um, and uh, I ended up showing it to my siblings later on, and it became one of the main pictures of her memorial because she's just vivacious in it. And she's sitting there, and, and her skirt's kind of twirling. And you can see, sitting on the ground over there, there's Lansdale, and they're having a picnic. And there's these people with, uh, oh, fatigues and those little Australian-type ranger hats walking around. And, and I look at the caption that my mother had written down, and it says, Out from Saigon with Colonel Lansdale and North Vietnamese military leaders. And, um, and, and so in doing my research, uh, in, in 1955, okay, we took over uh, Vietnam after Bien Bien Phu in 1954. Okay, in 1955, um, Lansdale, because the uh, French intelligence and the Corsican Mafia had not, were still running the Golden Triangle. And at Lansdale asked them to leave, and they said, well, no. And so uh, there was a shooting war, and this is uh, Gerald Posner's, one of his first books uh, talks about it. This is one of the very few shooting wars between Western intelligence agencies. And we went up there and took over the Golden Triangle. And so... This is right after, you know, so my dad gets there in 56, and, and also you can read about uh, Lansdale going up into Vietnam and bringing down a whole bunch of people from North Vietnam. It wasn't, actually, it was all Vietnam at that time. And, um, well, see, what my dad told me in 1969 with the professor from Vanderbilt, he opened up his mouth, the first words he said was, Vietnam War is about drugs. There's these secret societies behind it. You know, I'm thinking he's talking about the mafia. It's the only thing I could think of. And this, uh, like, in this is 1969, 
And then he tells me, and communism's all a sham. These same secret societies are behind it all. It's all a big game. And at that point in time, I, I think my dad's nuts. And I'm a teenager in the late 60s. And I know more about drugs than he does. And then this little light bulb comes on in my head and says, oh, he's having the drug talk with me. He hadn't had the other one. I was married and had a six-month-old kid. So I start to straighten up, and I'm you know, getting ready to say yes, sir, and all this, and waiting for my dad to tell me to stop smoking pot. And he does, and he tells me all about his intelligence career. And tells, then they start talking about how they're playing out a loose scenario in Vietnam. And then they start talking about psychological warfare and sway pieces. And it soon becomes apparent that I have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. But so th- this meeting in, in, in 56 that my dad had with uh, Lansdale, uh, for my money, he was right on because they took American boys and girls and sent them to hell for one year. And then those boys and girls, some of them got addicted to the heroin that was being proffered to them by anybody who was 12 years and up. And then what, is a, what does a junkie do? A junkie sells junk. And you take these boys and girls that are come there from all across America and send some of them back as junkies because what I've determined is, is you know, and what my dad told me, too, he, he actually told me this before the meeting with uh, the professor. He had told me one time, he says, he says, they're out to opiate your whole generation. And this was the first time I'd ever heard the word opiate. I knew what it meant. And I remember telling him, I says, listen, I, I never see that stuff. I don't, I don't lie. I just smoke a little pot. And he came back at me and he says, well, I don't care. You're still making money for them. And the way he spat out them, I, I knew he didn't like them. And um, so it was, uh, and also the other thing is, is right after that, my dad came back, Lansdale was recalled from Vietnam. So I've, figure my dad wrote a report and it wasn't very uh, good and Lansdale then was recalled and there are people who uh, say Lansdale was in Dealey Plaza that day and for my money he was the scriptwriter of the Kennedy assassination well yes there's a, a very famous uh, picture taken in Dealey Plaza in the aftermath of the assassination of President Kennedy that clearly shows what Fletcher Prouty said is Ed Lansdale walking down the street. The, the view is from behind, but the characteristic twist of his hand identifies him. This, according to Fletcher Prouty, and of course, it's one of the many pictures of the three tramps. Right, right. And there was also a, a general who, who was very familiar with Lansdale that, that concurred uh, 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 with that. And, uh, you know, where did Lansdale come from? I, he, I, I live out in Oregon, and there was happened to be uh, the town I live in, Eugene. Outside Eugene, there was uh, his nephew, Ed Lansdale's nephew, lived here for many years. And we used to get together and talk, and we figured that, that uh, Ed was an advertising guy from San Francisco. And there was uh, the possibility that he had been... Uh, connected with some of the occult groups in San Francisco. And that was one way that he got involved. Because, again, 
I, I look at this through the through what my daddy told me, and the secret societies, and for what my research has shown, at the end of the day, that's who the ruling bodies are, is through the secret societal network. I'm speaking with publisher and author Chris Milligan. Today's show, Skull and Bones, Secrecy and Our Republic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, did your father, now he did tell you that there was a plan to opiate the boomer generation. Did he go into mm-hmm. any detail about that or, or say why this was being planned? No, he just, he just, he just said, he said, they are out to opiate your whole generation. Wow. This is exactly what he told me. What else did he tell you that you haven't yet mentioned? Well, you know, I've mentioned it, but this whole thing of of, of playing out a a loose scenario in a war. Uh, He he told me that, and it was, they were talking about that um, they had a, uh, they were working on a report, uh, a worldwide assessment, and it was my understanding uh, that this was when Eisenhower uh, came became president, and there was this worldwide assessment. And in that, they talked about uh, Vietnam and, and what could happen there, and they laid out a whole bunch of scenarios. And he told me that they're playing out one of the loose scenarios. And, you know, I had just a really hard time with that. I mean, I had a hard time with the, the statement that, um, you know, Communism's all a sham. These same secret societies. I, I I couldn't get my head around that, and and trying to get my head around the the fact that they're playing out a loose scenario in a war, because at that point in time, I mean, I was 19. It was a day before my 20th birthday. I was still trying to get my head around. Well, let me see. They're trying to send me to war, and they want me to go kill people. But then there's rules. I mean, when you try and kill somebody. I don't understand how there's rules in that, you know. It, it just was a, I just didn't understand that. And then somebody tells me that they're playing out a loose scenario in a war. I mean, that was even harder to, to, to understand. Now, when you say a loose scenario, are you saying that one of the scenarios or one of the possible objectives was to lose the Vietnam War? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, what it was is that they, they, they would say, okay, if we do this, this will happen. And they had a bunch of different scenarios about what could happen in, in Southeast Asia. And one of the scenarios was, well, if we back a Roman Catholics in a Buddhist country, um, it, it, it's not going to work. It, it will fail. And so that's one of, that was the loose scenario that they were playing out. In other words, they... You know, in this report, they said, okay, we could do this, we could do that, we could do this, we could do that. And in one of these things, they picked the one that was a loose scenario. Huh. So that sort of indicates that maybe, oh, I don't know, that they they were planning on losing? Right, right. I mean, he, he's telling me this in 1969. <laughs> I still have a hard time getting my head around it, you know. But But, yes... Because, again, it's a secret societal network. And then the other thing he said in there, uh, you know, uh, 
Communism's all a sham. These same secret societies are behind it all. It's all a big game. It's all a big game, okay? So how I look at it is you have the secret societal system that's able through uh, different people, uh, through different organizations, is able to uh, affect change within different countries. And they play countries against each other. They do all kinds of things. Their end game, their end game is to rule the world through China, these secret societies. Here's how the secret societies run the world. This is a leviathan of three levels. Each level has three parts. The top level is mining, metal, and money. And, you know, you think about it, and it kind of makes sense. And then the middle part is uh, a very active part. They use war a lot. And that's drugs, guns, and oil. And you see, it was a guy from Skull and Bones in 1855 that made gasoline for the very first time. And as soon as he made that, Dr. Benjamin Sullivan Jr., he wrote a letter to the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company of New York, who he did the report for, and he said, gee, gentlemen, you have some very valuable products with a very inexpensive process. As soon as he wrote that report, the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company of New York was sold to investors in New Haven, Connecticut. That's where Skull and Bones is. And the Bissells, who had started the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company, and the Townsends, who they'd gone to financing for, soon had their very sons at Yale in the order of Skull and Bones. There's Rockefellers and Skull and Bones. So they then proceeded to monopolize everything around oil. The only reason we go to the oil store is because... They own it. There's other ways of making power. The, the, the internal combustion engine patents go back to the 1840s. They were using a, a coal slurry. Well, like I say, these, they've just monopolized everything. Skull and Bones was started by the Russell, uh, Russells and the Taft family. The Russells were the owners of Russell and Company, the largest opium smuggler in America and the third largest in the world. Um, guns. Uh, Skull and Bones is based in Connecticut. At, at one point in time, their thing on their license plate says America's Arsenal because, well, let me see, the, the, the helicopters started there in, in Connecticut. The, the submarines started there in Connecticut. Um, you have all the Browning uh, automatic rifles for World War One and World War II. We're on this almost a straight line up from the, the temple of, of Skull and Bones. Uh, and then you have uh, a lot of gun manufacturers there. Um, Prescott Bush was on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, and then where this meets the road, it's media, movie slash music, because they've got to control the culture or the cultural bite them. And then at the very end is quote-unquote magic, their ability to hoodwink us and their preponderance in using mass trauma to scare the crap out of us. And keep us in line. I, I wish I could, you know, say, well, here I've got all kinds of information. But you know, when when you're dealing with secret societies, intelligence services, uh, drug smuggling, and stuff like that, there's a a lot of reasons that they obfuscate. Um, what first piqued your interest in Skull and Bones at Yale University in 
particular. Now, obviously, there are a lot of secret societies, but you mainly focused on skull and bones. What what piqued your interest in skull and bones? Well, you know, my my dad mentioned secret societies. He never mentioned skull and bones. And it was the thing I found the hardest to find any information about. And um, basically during, what was it, 1988, uh, George Bush... Uh, campaign, uh, I came across Anthony Sutton's book, America's Secret Establishment, an introduction to the order of skull and bones. And that started to make some sense about what my dad had said, because like I said, I had the hardest time getting my head around, and communism's all a sham, these same secret societies are behind it. And if you uh, look at America's uh, secret establishment, it goes into how they were financing uh, communism and financing Russia and other things. So it started to make some sense. And then when I looked at the people uh, that were in Skull and Bones, I said, yeah, these guys are, are, are the main, main, main group. Now there is, uh, oh, basically seven secret societies there at, at Yale, and uh, there's uh, Scroll and Key, uh, uh, Book and Snake. I find Book and Snake very, very interesting. When Skull and Bones was started, you only had you had Yale College and you had Sheffield Scientific School, and you could only join Skull and Bones if you went to Yale College. And so the people at Sheffield Scientific School, oh, about 20 years after Yale was founded, founded uh, Book and Snake, and you have uh, such as uh, Bob Woodard's a member of uh, Book and Snake, uh, Brady's a member, Nick Brady, the Treasury Secretary, is a member of Book and Snake. But when I looked at Skull and Bones, they were uh, the most powerful, the oldest uh, secret society. The Order of Skull and Bones was founded how long ago as a chapter of a secret society based in Germany? Uh, 1832 is when it was uh, uh, formed as the Order of Skull and Bones. There are uh, uh, scholars, Masonic scholars, who trace it. Um, to uh, Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, Phi Beta Kappa was first started at the College of William and Mary. Uh, two offshoots went, one went to Yale and one went to Harvard. Uh, then came along uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, College of William and Mary was shut down. Um, Yale and, and Harvard kept going. Uh, in the, um, oh, we had our first big anti-Illuminati scare. Uh, in the late 1790s, and then uh, in the in the 1820s, uh, we started to have uh, an anti-Masonic uh, movement grew up, and uh, by the 1830s, there it became not very oh uh, cool to be in a secret society. So first, Phi Beta Kappa at Harvard uh, became an open society. And then Phi Beta Kappa in 1832, a bunch of people that were in Phi Beta Kappa um, formed uh, the Order of Skull and Bones, uh, William Huntington Russell and Alonzo Taft. I always thought that the term Illuminati was some sort of invented term, but it turns out that Illuminati was the actual name of a secret society based in Bavaria. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Yes, and and um, it, it was all 
uh, it was started by a uh, uh, Jewish guy at a at a uh, Jesuit uh, university, and it was all about Greek. Every it was all talking about Greek, and then. See, Phi Beta Kappa was started in uh, 1776, the same year that uh, Bavarian Illuminati was started. He he was started on uh, May 1st, and uh, Phi Beta Kappa was started in in December. And it was the first Greek, all-Greek society here in the United States. And so, like I say, there are several uh, uh, researchers and scholars that say that uh, Phi Beta Kappa was the Illuminati uh, come to America. In some of the parts of, of, of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones that you've written, you go into an analysis or an explication of these different familial groups within Skull and Bones. I mean, there were the Bundys, and apparently McGeorge Bundy, his brother mm-hmm. and his father were Skull and Bones, and McGeorge Bundy was in many, many administrations, including President Kennedy's, and he was really undercover for the intelligence agencies, wasn't he? Yeah, they were, they were, they were CIA also. And, yeah, Mc, McGeorge is an interesting guy. He uh, helped, helped cause the uh, Bay of Pigs situation. That's right. He contramanded, I just discovered, President Kennedy's order to support uh the Bay of Pigs, and the flights were called off by McGeorge Bundy and then blamed on President Kennedy, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the whole Bush family, they're in there. I mean, there's so many people that we're familiar with in powerful positions that come out of Skull and Bones. It's actually quite amazing in your book. Well, and, 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 and it continues. Um, the uh, black something group that... Uh, Oh, what's his name? Steve Swartmore. He's Skull and Bones. Uh, they own uh, Sears and Kmart now. Uh, you know, uh, your your Treasury Secretary Mnuchin is is Skull and Bones. I did an interview with Webster Griffin Tarpley on events leading up to World War One. According to Webster Tarpley, secret societies and fraternal lodges in many different European countries played major roles in alliances and events causing World War I. In your research, have you found that members of secret societies have wielded extraordinary power in causing conflagrations? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, and they, they help cause them. Uh, they'll sell arms to both sides. And then you find them at the uh, peace treaties, too, uh, helping make sure that there'll be another war. I'm speaking with publisher and author Chris Milligan. Today's show, Skull and Bones, Secrecy and Our Republic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But once somebody picks up one of these books and wants to make a movie out of it, and if they want to make an honest movie about it, um, all, all the knives are brought out. I can tell you, uh, I was dealing with one gentleman. Uh, he'd been executive producer of a, of a major uh, TV show. Uh, he, he saw how the powers that be were using that TV show to uh, create false narratives. Uh, he stepped out, uh, found our uh, books, and wanted to make several of them into movies. They tried. Uh, 
First off, they started getting uh, computerized phone calls. Uh, their place got broke into. Their bank account got sequestered. He calls me up one time and says, well, you know, um, there's this guy chasing me all around town in a white SUV, and I can't, I can't shake him. Uh, another time he calls me up and says, well, they're trying to get me fired. They're, they're putting out uh, rumors that I'm out on Sunset selling Oxycontin at night. He says, my boss knows that that's not true. They kept on uh, soldiering on. Then he calls me up and says, well, I, I've got to take a sabbatical. And I say, well, what's, what's going on? He says, well, somebody met his wife on a street corner and said, hey, if your husband doesn't stop what he's doing, we're going to kill him and then you. What are your children going to do? So then he calls me back up in two weeks and says, well, I guess we're just making Will Ferrell movies. Now, the book that uh, your Hollywood uh, colleague was trying to make a movie out of or, or whatever he was trying to do, which, which book that you published was that? Well, Franklin Scandal was one. Another was uh, uh, Dr. Mary's Monkey, and another was uh, uh, A Terrible Mistake, the story of uh, Frank Olson. In the preface, you ask, do these secret societies create and control both sides in controlled conflicts to produce outcomes to further their new world order designs? Have you decided on an answer to that question? Uh, yes, they do. I mean, it, it's thesis, antithesis, synth synthesis. And, you know, if you can control both sides, the antithesis and the thesis, then you have a good chance of, of getting the synthesis that you want. Now, one of the big contributors to your book, of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, of course, is Dr. Anthony C. Sutton. And I, and I read some of his uh, contributions to your anthology. In 1968, the Hoover Institute at Stanford University published Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development by Anthony Sutton. According to your book, Anthony Sutton's research and publications claimed that the majority of the Soviet Union's large industrial enterprises had been built with the United States' help or technical assistance. Now, you, you met uh, Anthony Sutton, didn't you? Yes. His background is really very impressive. I guess he was born in the UK, he had this incredible education, and he worked in all of these very heavy-duty industries, mining, steel, etc., and then went on uh, for more education at UCLA, Stanford. Did you work much with him? Um, I had the, the great pleasure of, of meeting him and working with him the last uh, couple years of his life, yes. And he, he was working at the Hoover Institute, and they asked him to write that book on the Western economics and the, and the Soviet technology. Uh, and he had uh, published the first two books. It, it's a series of three books. And when he got to the third volume, um, which was in the late 60s, they said, oh, well, no, we don't want to publish that one right now. And Anthony, you know, he was a, uh, uh, what do you call it, naturalized uh, U.S. citizen. And, you know, to do that, you have to read your Constitution. And so he was 
very well of the Constitution, and he didn't quite understand this. And so he kept talking to them, and they said, well, Anthony, don't break your rice bowl. And he broke his rice bowl. He went ahead, and because they wouldn't allow him to, to publish the third part, and so he went around them and published it as, as national suicide. Uh, because basically what his research had shown was that the war material that uh, the Russians were sending to the to the North Vietnamese, because the North Vietnamese were not backed by China, they were backed by Russia, uh, so much so that China would not allow trains to go across China from Russia to Vietnam. And so he found that almost all the war material was made in conjunction with U.S. technology, sometimes even U.S. plants that were ordered through Italy that were set up in Russia to make the war material so that the North Vietnamese could fight us in the Vietnam War. And uh, so that was his first uh, revelation. So he got fired from the Hoover Institute there at Stanford for for, uh, doing that. And so then he started to write uh, what are his Wall Street books. He wrote Wall Street and FDR, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, and Wall Street and uh, FDR and and Hitler. And then uh, after he had written those books, uh, somebody called him up uh, and says, Hey, would you like a list of uh, people in Skull and Bones? And he said, Sure. And they sent him out to him. Uh, he had to return the thing in 24 hours, and so he copied it and put it in a box underneath his desk. And he told me, he says, after a while, he would sit there and he kicked this box, and he, and he, oh yeah, and he looked into it, and he, and, and uh, he says, oh, well, these are a bunch of the people that uh, he'd been writing about. So he then started to uh, write these. Uh, uh, little booklets about uh, Skull and Bones, and, and he could find nobody to uh, publish them here. So he found a publisher in Australia that would publish them, and, but then they started getting stolen off the docks. And um, at this point in time, there was no Internet, and uh, he had a newsletter. And some people on his newsletter said, what do you mean nobody will publish them? And this was a mom-and-pop print print shop up in Montana, so they started publishing his uh, books. And uh, I had sent him, I had sent him letters uh, to, to them, but I'd never heard back from them, and finally I started writing about Skull and Bones, and, and uh, I started trying to get magazines, and nobody would, would touch it, and finally I found High Times, and High Times wrote an article, and then uh, the internet came around, I put it up online, and Anthony just sent me an email one day, and we became friends. And Trine Day does publish his book on Skull and Bones, right? You do publish that. Yes, yeah. American Secret Establishment, and he has quite a few other ones out there that people can find. They're very, very good. And we published his, his last article in Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. It's about uh, 9-11. Were you suspicious about his death, or did it seem like natural to you? Well... Um, when I first went to Anthony, he, I says, well, you know, let's, because it, it was going out of print. I said, Anthony, we can't do that. And at the same time, we had Alexander, uh, Robbins coming out because there was no books on, on skull and bones. And I had 
talked to these people before and I figured out finally I was talking to a spook and they were they were trying to figure out who was going to be the talking head uh, for Skull and Bones because pretty soon we were going to have John Kerry versus George Bush and there was no way that they could get around it. And so so I completely uh, retypeset the book and I presented it to him and he said, no, 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 no. I just want you to take a picture of the old book and present. I do not want them to even think that I'm thinking about them. Because he had pretty much stopped his research and was just, he was into, uh, uh, he was doing a future technological newsletter. He's mostly talking about uh, uh, future technology. And so I said, okay, and we did that. I got his book printed, delivered it to him, he was dead within three weeks. Okay, uh, his uh, girlfriend told me. She says, "Well, some people moved upstairs, and then moved out right after he passed. He he dropped dead in his uh, kitchen. I couldn't get anything out of the corner other than uh, heart. He had, they said he had a heart attack. I I could get nobody to to run an uh, obit on him." And nobody would nobody would touch it. Nobody would even do an an obit for him. How nobody old, would do an obit. How old was he? Do you remember? Oh, uh, maybe seventy two, something like that. Oh, so he wasn't all that old. No. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you know he would have been the go to talking head guy, and uh, he was gone. You mean with used... regard to skull and bones, or what? Yeah, with regard to skull and bones. Yeah. So they they ended up using Alexander Robbins, who was a member of the Order of Skull and Key. And I did read some of his stuff that's included in your anthology of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, and it was interesting that he was able to analyze Russian technological prowess and their industrial capabilities, and of course, as I sort of mentioned before, they were getting help from the United States not only to build uh, some of this stuff, but technical assistance. And he made a point of saying that the prevailing view in the United States was that the Russians were ahead of us. I remember all of this from when I was a kid. They're, the Russians are going to beat us. But he proved in this trilogy about uh, Russian industrialization that that this was a fantasy, this wasn't true at all, that their system of top-down control was really preventing creativity and innovation, and they weren't going to outstrip us at all. Right, well, but, you know, you you got to have somebody to be afraid of, right, so that you can move the population in the in the uh, direction that you want. And again, I mean, I, I go back to my, my father telling me, you know, Communism is all a sham. These same secret societies are behind it. It's all a big game. I mean, I still have a hard time getting my head around all that. Yes, exactly. And one of the shocking uh, revelations in some of the stuff that Antony Sutton wrote that's included in Fleshing Out Skull and Bones is that Henry Kissinger, against the strong objections from the U.S. Department of Defense, transferred incredible technology to uh, the USSR, that enabled them to build missiles, etc. Well, you got to have an enemy. What about secret societies in general? What is most important to understand about them? Uh, that their secrecy is not good for our republic. 
Kennedy had that big speech about secret societies and about secrecy. And the secrecy allows these forces in the shadows to game us and to uh, have their way with us. Chris Milligan, thank you so much. You're entirely welcome, and thank you. I've been speaking with Chris Milligan. Today's show has been Skull and Bones, Secrecy and Our Republic. Chris Milligan is a publisher, writer, and musician. His publishing house, Trine Day, brought Anthony Sutton's America's Secret Establishment, an introduction to the order of Skull and Bones, to a wider audience. He started Trine Day in 2000 as a vehicle to get suppressed books into wider circulation. With no shortage of spiked materials, Trine Day has grown to over 100 volumes in print and has succeeded in achieving a wider distribution for suppressed works. He edited and is a contributing author of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, Investigations into America's Most Powerful Secret Society. Visit his website at trineday.com. That's T-R-I-N-E-D-A-Y com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio.